This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, we got a whole load of the uh, topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville with our panel here in the studio. Mike Van Solen is a principal at Navigator. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing really great, John. Good to have you here. Adrian Batra, Editor-in-Chief of the Toronto Sun. Good afternoon. Great day for talk radio, John. Thank you, Adrian. And Dave Sparrow, the National President of ACTRA. That's the Film and TV Actors Union here in Canada. Mr. Sparrow, sir. Just trying to bring a little brightness into the dark skies that are <laughs> falling slowly down. <laughs> you, what a Toronto. master thespian. I, you just had me hooked there. I mean, I was just <laughs> dripping off uh, every dollop. But anyway, listen. Uh, this is going somewhere inappropriate, I feel. No, it's not. <laughs> no, never. Not, not anymore. Not on this show. No, sir. Let not last you anymore. Well, here's something that's inappropriate, or so it's been positioned as such. The Ontario Human Rights Commission just came out with an interim report earlier today into racial profiling and racial discrimination by the Toronto Police. And they've used data primarily, well, from police sources, including the SIU, uh, when it comes to confrontations with the police. They found, for example, that uh, although black residents comprised only 8.8% of Toronto's total population, they accounted for 25% of SIU investigations during the time period 2013 till the end of June 2017. And furthermore, black complainants were involved in 28% of all use of force investigations. And uh, the more force that was used, the greater that number uh, went. So uh, what we have are these encounters with police has been documented by the police themselves in the SIU. Mike McCormick, who's the uh, head of the Toronto Police Association, came on to, I guess, offer context or a rebuttal to this. This was his comment earlier last hour. We get called to respond to a person's actions, whether they are being violent, whether there's weapons involved. So if we're responding, we're not dictating to the type of people that we're responding to deal with. Those are dictated by people's actions. So if it's a black person or a white person, that's not up to us. All right. In other words, what he's saying is uh, this set of data is not a reflection of systemic discrimination as much as it is that uh, he's suggesting, anyway, a greater degree of criminal behavior within certain communities. Adrian Batra, is he wrong? There's a certain narrative that certain elements of our society would like to perpetuate, and that is that we have the most racist, the most egregious law enforcement agencies all over the place. Um, And I would submit to you that this report doesn't help with that notion. Um, And I would also say that there is more context needed. The Ontario Human Rights Commission has their own narrative that they want to push. They have um, interesting data before them. I just think that we have no real comparators. Mr. McCormick makes a valid point. Cops are there to do a job. Um, we are not talking, and if we, we even took certain aspects of what we've seen over the course of the summer, uh, a lot of crime has increased. A lot of it has been um, black-on-black crime. Uh, there is brown-on-brown crime. So it's more to me than just saying police officers, after carding has been taken away, we have no more street checks. We have no more ability for them to actually have conversations with people on the street uh, that things have potentially either gotten worse or haven't improved. I, I have a real hard time with some of this information. Um, 
And I do go back to the notion again that there is more context needed. And I know I am going to, well, my no, Twitter's going to light up and everyone's going to say, I'm a terrible racist and, and all these things. But uh, I, I think we owe that duty to our police officers to to give them that uh, that context. Well, as I was saying earlier, you know, a bigot might be anybody who might question the methodology of the report uh, if you don't subscribe mm. to it. But this is where I found as well, it seems either incomplete uh, or it's slanted or even politicized and weaponized, David. Sparrow, how do you respond? Well, you know, there's no question that uh, many of our neighborhoods face tougher challenges than others, that uh, there are communities that have steeper hills to climb than many others. And, and is systemic discrimination one factor in how those neighborhoods develop and the kind of activities that go on in those neighborhoods? Absolutely. Are our police officers any more racist or discriminatory than the average people in society? No, they're not. They're out there doing a job. And at the same time, I think that we obviously need to continue to work within those neighborhoods and to hold people to uh, account who are helping to police those neighborhoods and, and hopefully have some kind of impact on these statistics. But I'll agree with Adrian that more context around stats is always required. Um, even when you see something like 25% of SIU cases, then the immediate question one has to ask is how many SIU cases were there um, in order to know uh, what the factors were and, and what kind of cases were they. So so this is a, a tough tough uh, subject that's been going on for some time, certainly. Well, right. Okay. But the raw numbers that are broken out here by the Human Rights Commission, again, it gives a slanted perspective. Uh, Is there something to take away from even that slanted perspective or is it disqualified because it doesn't have the full context? Because they're talking strictly about encounters with the police and some perhaps did not end well. Right. But we don't have the number of crimes that were being investigated and uh, the nature of those crimes, but we don't keep crime stats based on race. Is that an oversight that could maybe help contextualize this whole thing, Mike? Well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of decisions that we take to kind of remove bias from a lot of reporting and stuff we do. So what we're left with is an organization, and if they really want to take a hard run at the police, which I believe that was kind of what they wanted to do with this, um, that they're able to sort of paint a pretty you know, damn tough picture of, of what it looks like and and make it look as if the Toronto Police Service is a racist uh, group. Uh, I just I just know that's not the case. I know every, you know, th- this is men and women who work really hard to uphold the law and do a, a really uh, tough job each and every day. There is bias in organizations. I think uh, in the modern context, we're all sort of working to sort of work, work through those issues, no different than the police service is. But these numbers, of course, are, are, are difficult just to take on their face and, and to draw hard conclusions. Uh, 8.8, they say they make up 8.8% of the population. But, you know, more importantly, what percentage of the population of, uh, low-income communities do they make up? Uh, what percentage of uh, participation sort of gang activities do they make up? You know, there's a whole bunch of other conceptual pieces that are important to really understand and unpack this. Um, so, look, I, I think we, we have the police chief and we have the head of the union who are working to address these issues. They know everything they do is going to be, uh, they're going to living in the fishbowl and people are going to be working hard to, you know, take them to task for how, how they operate and, and exercise their duties in, in the city. Well, this becomes problematic, having asked McCormick as well, the impact on the rank and file. Mm-hmm. And he says it's dispiriting, or not his word, but uh, demoralizing, yeah. I guess. And in some cases, the cops say, well, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. So why bother? You know, the acronym FIDO, 
F it, drive on. Uh, yeah, exactly. Look, I, I, I served in the military for seven years, mm. and there is always a report that comes out over the course of three to six years talking about, um, you know, some, some pretty shady stuff that has happened within certain elements of, of the military. Um, I read these reports, John, and I sort of think back, well, this is not the military I grew up with. This is not the military I was in. Yes, are there bad actors within any organization, civilian, paramilitary, whatever? Absolutely. And I don't think that the Toronto Police Service is immune to to that as well. But to the context of what we're talking about, there are going to be, narr- and, and I mentioned it before, but narratives that want to be pushed about what is actually going on with the TPS or, or Saskatoon or Regina or Winnipeg, police services in general, that it is this hotbed of racism and misogyny and all of this stuff that is changing. And I don't believe that whatever information has been reflected today is um, contextual enough to uh, acknowledge and reflect the changes that are coming. Have we had problems? No question. Will we have problems going in the future? Absolutely. But we know McCormick. We know um, the chief Saunders. They're looking at these things and the service is changing. It's a service that recognizes and actually, frankly, in my view, reflects the demographics of the changing city. Hmm. So change is inevitable. Let me ask David Sparrow, uh, if there were bad actors everywhere, would they still be card-carrying members of ACTRA in good standing? <laughs> <laughs> well, bad actors are welcome to become members of ACTRA, and uh, we hope that they'll develop their professional skills through many of our <laughs> online courses. I guess uh, on a serious note, though, the question of whether or not uh, this could be counterproductive uh, insofar as, again, widening the divide between the police service and any trust that they're trying to make with inroads and outreach programs into the community. So, uh, you know, is this maybe uh, bad timing as far as this interim report is concerned? Well, you know, uh, as you know, I've run for office a couple of times up in in uh, the Don Valley West area and Thorncliffe Park and Flemington uh, Park are, are part of the areas that I uh, learned much more about. And I've only seen so many positive things done by the police officers coming in on their time off and and uh, working with youth and trying to build up those communities. And so I'm sure that this is demoralizing when they're all painted with the same brush. When we hear various anecdotal stories from uh, people of color who have had run-ins with the police uh, because they're walking in an affluent neighborhood, those kind of things have to stop. That's ridiculous that people are being challenged and asked for their ID because they just happen to be riding their bicycle in in an affluent neighborhood. At the same time, when the police are responding to calls, as McCormick was speaking about. Obviously, they haven't chosen uh, our desire to respond to that call until the call was made, and they don't know to what neighborhood they're going or who they're going to run into. But we hope they'll be professional and that they'll treat everyone with the same amount of uh, respect that people deserve and and uh, try to bring some kind of order to our, to our city when it gets uh, out of control. All right. On matters of justice or injustices, I want to uh, pursue this with another story that has to do with Corrections Canada. Let's come back with our panel on that note and more topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. I was just mentioning before your arrival here, panel, that there's a a story about, uh, well, it has to do with young Tori Stafford again, brutally murdered back in April of 2009, and her father, Rodney Stafford. You recall a few months back when Terry Lynn McClintock, one of the co-conspirators and a person who was also uh, found guilty of uh, murder in the first degree was transferred from 
uh, the Grand Valley uh, Correctional Institution to a healing lodge, a native healing lodge in Saskatchewan, and all the appropriate outrage ensued. Well, it turns out now Rodney Stafford has found out that uh, her co uh conspirator and killer in this case, Michael Rafferty, was also sent from maximum security to medium security, but last March, last March, and he says he's so ashamed to be Canadian right now. As a matter of fact, he is uh, suggesting there be an overhaul of Correction Service Canada. Now, the public safety minister, Ralph Goodale, was asked similarly about this when Terry Lynn McClintock and that whole thing blew up. Uh, He was, I guess, put to... uh, I guess they they were putting the question to him again as well in the House of Commons earlier today, and he said this. I will uh, examine the facts of this case to ensure that all the proper rules and procedures have been followed and that Canadians are safe. Is that a good enough answer, Mike Van Solen, that all the proper rules and procedures were followed? I mean, doesn't he, as a public security and safety minister, just stand up and say, yeah, we got to get this guy's ass back into Max. 100%. Uh, I can't believe being so tin-eared on this as he is uh, in this moment. This was a, you know, we don't need to be reminded of, of how horrid a crime this was. But this really is as low uh, as you get as a human being to, uh, to have done this. And, you know, I, I have an idea that you're going away for 25 years. I mean, one, it's only 25 years. I, I, I put forward it shouldn't even be longer. But that you're going to maximum security. And it's not just you're in maximum security because, I don't know, you're the greatest chance of escaping. We want you to go to the toughest place, you, you know, the you know the, the worst setting, uh, you know, because it's a punishment. And I know there's everybody's all worried about, you know, what happens when they get out. Well, what about the victims? And what about us as society who want to send a strong message just say this is 100% not acceptable in this country anytime any place and if you do it if you get caught we're going to throw you away and it's going to be a dark hole and you're going to be there for a long time yeah I mean viscerally I can't disagree with any of that I mean he's just standing this is the public safety minister Goodell on process or procedure and that he's taking an arm's length kind of approach that this is their whole universe to have to deal with uh Am I wrong to suggest he better get his ass in there and sort of address this issue, Adrian? He would have thought, no, you're not wrong to suggest that, but you would have thought that when we went through this whole catastrophe with Terry Lynn McClintock, that Goodill would have been so properly briefed on this entire file that he would have, his office could have taken proactive measures to ensure that not only does the Stafford family not have to go through this again, but we as a society don't need to you know, continue to think about these pieces of crap mm. For, for however long they're going to serve the prison sentence. We are not an eye for an eye society. And in some instances, perhaps we should be. But I think no matter the most ardent or squishy of liberal or or rehabilitating type mindset one has, everybody can universally agree that these are two individuals that should not ever see the light of day again. I sat in that courtroom on a couple of occasions during that testimony. I will never forget it. Every Canadian... Um, has read the details in gross detail. Um, This is a sad reality of our criminal justice system. And Ralph Goodill is the one person in this country that has afforded an opportunity to change it. And he's done nothing. David Sparrow, the idea that the family only found out about it almost by happenstance because they were assured that uh, there was nothing on the file, nothing to uh, really report on Rafferty, although he asked... And uh, so somebody said, well, I'll get back to you. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, just found this. 
He was transferred last March to medium security. Don't we have to do better by the families of this type of victimhood? Absolutely, we do. And, you know, I personally, as a citizen, am hurt every time I hear about the process letting down the victims, letting down the families uh, when cases like this take place. This was a terrible crime. You know, if you get 25 years, you should serve 25 years. And, you know, I hope that people who serve this kind of time are rehabilitated. I hope that they are remorseful. I hope that they become able to do some kind of contribution to society. However, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be uh, treated uh, according to the crime that they committed and serve the kind of penalty that, that that demands. And, you know, society has to have trust in the system. And I think that what we've seen through this case in terms of both of the perpetrators now is that uh, we can't have trust in the way the system is dealing with this and that there needs to be a stronger hand in terms of this kind of uh, case and especially these kinds of terrible crimes. Well, you know, some of the criteria upon which somebody is based to uh, or is uh, deemed to have been maybe deserving of consideration to move from maximum to medium security. They say medium security inmates are expected to demonstrate an interest and actively participate in their correctional plan. Uh, Also, to access medium security, uh, offering a responsibility-based small group living environment, inmates will be expected to demonstrate a high level of motivation to participate in their correctional plan. Does that say anything that, you know, other than kind of motherhood statements that uh, if they're a good boy on their best behavior, hey, then we'll just schlep them on to medium security. I, I You know, when I read this, I didn't really know how to react except to say doesn't really tell me anything apart well, from uh, some overpaid bureaucrat really took a lot of time to write that. Right. That's how you react to that. Right. right. And, 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 and around year 23, let's uh, let's look at that criteria and have a conversation with Mr. Flaherty. Number of people uh, watching the story out of Marrakesh, Morocco, where uh, Canada, amongst uh, a slew of nations, signed on to the Global Compact for Migration. Much was said about it in the uh, time leading up to this, but uh, what did they say? 164 countries out of 193 UN members approved the agreement by acclamation. It's non-binding, but it's uh, sweeping in its intention, if you will, that uh, countries will assist each other with irregular migrants, and even our own immigration minister, Ahmed Hassan, was saying that uh, one of the key benefits is the opportunity to work with source countries, sort of nip in the bud so they're not traveling over deserts and seas and so on, susceptible to smugglers and all these other human traffickers, and uh, we can do migration in a more orderly fashion, rather than storming the gates as they've done on the southwest border of the United States or coming across Roxham Road here in uh, southwestern Quebec and so on and so forth. So, Mike Van Solen, I guess what I'm asking, because we've sort of uh, pounded on this all last week, will signing on to this agreement uh, help or hurt Justin Trudeau's liberals at election time, do you think? Well, I think it's the type of uh, virtue signaling and sort of globalist uh, packs that the federal liberal government loves. Uh, they obviously believe that uh, among their constituency of voters that this is something that works, and I'm sure that's why they're pressing ahead with it. But 
I just, I really just fundamentally don't understand what this pact is. I don't understand why we can't do the things that we're apparently committing to do. Like, why wouldn't the immigration minister today be able to work with source countries and make sure that uh, migration is done properly? And is it binding or isn't it binding? Uh, we have a Paris Accord uh, that the federal liberal government's apparently willing to put our economy in the ditch in order to put in place a carbon tax to fulfill the commitments of the Paris Accord. Yet that's non-binding, but they're going to sign out onto this 35-page thing, of which uh, I I bet most people have never seen, have read the whole text, and and this is not supposed to be binding. Uh, so, look, to me, it sounds like uh, virtue signaling. They're going to love it on the campaign trail. I don't know what it means in fact, and they should the things that they've committed in this thing, we should just be doing as a country anyways. Adrian, what's the political fallout here? So there is actually potential for a significant political fallout because... Even though a certain voting segment does like these very large, grand, uh, grandiose, uh, squishy UN resolutions, the actual reality on the ground is quite different. So if you don't agree with Justin Trudeau or Minister Hussain on this, you're a racist, right? Automatically. So just well, put, he said as much. Basically. Mm. Um, but what's absurd about it, the context around this um, non-binding agreement from the United Nations is to in part deal with um, the millions of fleeing out of certain parts of Euro- uh, of, of Africa and, uh, and where they're going to go, be it Europe or whatever the case. Switzerland was one of the basically co-authors of this yeah. this global compact. As was Austria. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Switzerland has now decided that they will not implement this unless there's a vote in parliament. Mm-hmm. And I suspect it will get defeated in parliament. But Austria, Israel... Like there are many, many countries now that are sort of stepping back and saying, hang on a second. This is not quite what it was sold to be. And there are countries that are skipping the entire meeting in Marrakesh. But Justin Trudeau has so decided that there is, um, you know, we call it virtue signaling. Absolutely. But he has decided that this is his race based politics that he wants to place to play. He has decided that if you don't agree with their version of what Canadian is, you are, um, you know, all the terrible things that Donald Trump is. So I don't think Canadians are going to buy it, frankly. Okay, so that's the uh, follow. By the way, uh, I hear the Belgium Belgian government, uh, the coalition government kind of dissolved because the prime minister signed on and the opposition party was not in favor. So they yanked the plug on that. But David Sparrow, uh, is this non-binding agreement a Trojan horse? In other words, where it will actually become not binding, but uh, the intention will be an aspirational goal, you know, a stretch goal to live up to. And then suddenly, kind of like the Paris Climate Accord, you want to uh, live by those precepts, set those as your targets. And next thing you know, uh, you're bringing migrants in and nobody can say boo about it because as soon as to Adrian's point, you flag it or you, you want to have a dissenting point of view, you'll be branded a racist and a bigot. Is there a danger here? Well, whether it's a Trojan horse, once you sign on to such an agreement and say that this is the kind of policy that you want to uh, follow, then I suspect that it's going to start to influence the kind of politics that you have within your own country. But all that said, you know, and I don't want to get too Game of Thrones and dystopian about this, but globalization is real. Climate change is real. And human migration is real, whether it's financial or discrimination based on religion or other things, whether it's about water or food, is that the human population 
population is about to experience some of the greatest migration that's ever happened in the history of the planet. And building a wall um, to the south of your border, taking on various protectionist ideals is not going to protect us from it. We do need to start to work as a global entity and come up with ways to uh, deal with this kind of migration because people are going to be facing these challenges. And whether it's done through the UN or whether it's done in our home countries is we have to be ready to assist people in moving around the world yeah, and escaping some of their challenges. I, I actually don't think that that's part of the argument. I think part of the issue is that we want to be able to have this globalist society. We understand it's, it's, it's beneficial, but we need to be smart about it. And I think the challenge when we get these edicts from the United Nations is they often end up going nowhere. They cost tall taxpayers around the world billions of dollars to and to what end? And all of those millions of people that should be helped don't end up getting helped in the first place. And that puts strains on our own country in our own backyard. I'm not talking about the need to be protectionist and walls or whatever. What I'm simply saying is there's a need to be smart about this. And I do not believe that the current federal government is actually being thoughtful about it at all. They're being emotional. Well, but look, even at the numbers, a total of 164 countries among the 193 UN members approve this agreement, 85%. But are we going to be uh, lectured to by the likes of Saudi Arabia and these despotic? We already are. Well, no, I get that. But you know, what, how come in the... Uh, scope of the whole Syrian catastrophe. They didn't open their arms to their brethren and cistern and allow those people to come in there. Now, I get that you have sectarian differences, but I mean, for God's sake, somebody in the Middle East could have taken in their own members of the tribe, and I say right. that not in any disparaging way. So how come it then behooves uh, the nations in Europe to say, well, welcome here and we avail you of all these wonderful things. We're a compassionate lot. But man, I don't understand. They're signing on to this stuff, but they're not taking, they're not doing any of the heavy lifting. And this, I mean, this is where these problems sort of uh, arise. And we see it, we see it in, in Western nations now more and more, where you give up, you know, this is what happens, what's happening in Britain right now, where you give up your sovereignty, your ability to make decisions about your own country, who comes in, who goes out. And not that you're mean or racist as a nation, but just that you want to have the ability to make those decisions. Um, when you surrender that to a lot large body like the United Nations. Uh, that's what sows the seeds of discontent. That's where Western democracies, when countries vote for real right-wing parties, when it's a reaction because they don't feel the country uh, the country has been able to make its own sort of smart decisions to tailor its refugee and, and migration policies to those that would work for the country that work that match Canadian values. Uh, I just believe uh, maintaining that level of sovereignty and self-direction is important as a nation. And that's where we get lost in the heady sort of press conferences around rah, 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 United Nation events is that we just actually have to go about doing the right work of having sensible uh, immigration policy, helping for sure people uh, in in difficult situations around the world who need to find a better place to live. Uh, let's not tie the hands of future political leaders, though, to respond to whatever might be come up down the road. Let me just uh, pivot here with one last piece that uh, deals with bigotry of a stripe. Anyway, that's the accusation against Jason Kenney, who looks to be the putative next premier of the province of Alberta in May. But uh, now I guess they're digging up dirt on him and something that he said going back to the mid 80s during the AIDS epidemic that he didn't support extending hospital visitation rights to gay couples. 
Well, he since said he regrets that because now he's being presented with that, which, as I said earlier, may disqualify him from hosting the Oscars. Uh, (laughs) Or getting a Heisman Trophy award. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So uh, let me ask you first and foremost, this sort of surfaced last week with Kevin Hart, as we know. Sparrow, you represent on actors and uh, all these fine performers and so on and so forth. When it comes to uh, some of these things that could be dredged up from their past, would that disqualify them from assuming certain roles? I think it would disqualify all of us from assuming certain (laughs) roles, including radio hosts and everybody, is that uh, we've all said stupid things. And I would put it to you that the intelligent among us, if you will, have also evolved over the decades since we said those stupid things. Goodness, I I was a stand-up back in the 1980s, and I said a lot of, of terrible things on stages. Uh, Luckily, they they weren't recorded for posterity. But the point I'm making is that I no longer, not only do I no longer think that way, I no longer say those things because I recognize now the impact that they can have on people. And so it's not part of my thinking. It's not part of my vocabulary anymore. And I think that I'll get, even though Jason Kenney is not high on my Christmas list, I'll say that I give him the benefit of the doubt that he has changed over the last 20 years, as has Kevin Hart. And it's ridiculous that we can go back and pluck a statement out of the past and uh, burn somebody's future with it. Well, should there be a statute of limitations? I mean, who draws the line as to what the time limit is before that thing kind of uh, is absolved? Well, I'd, I'd hate to see the government entity that's the arbiter of that because that's very terrifying. Um, this is a giant nothing burger. It will go nowhere. Um, in fact, I would I would submit that Jason Kenney's plurality in the, in the May election of Alberta is going to be perhaps one of the biggest since Ralph Klein. And so this is not going to be anything. There's your right-wing populism you were speaking about, (laughs) Michael. Uh, Barack Obama used to be against gay marriage. Let's not forget that. So people's uh, thinking can evolve. There you are, right there. Uh, We know he's a darling of the left, and uh, we'll leave it at that. Thank you all. Mike Van Solen, Principal and Navigator, Adrian Batra from the Toronto Sun, Dave Sparrow, National President of ACTRA. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.